0: Open your Bibles to the fifth chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, we're continuing here with our exposition of Paul's letter to the church of Ephesus this morning. I have a long sermon for you, I'll just tell you that right up front, so uh, hopefully you don't have a roast on time bake, and because I don't want to break this material up, it's just important that it stays together. This is a a sermon that is uh, needful for us to be sure, it's not an easy sermon to prepare or deliver. It may not be an easy sermon to hear. I want it to be filled with grace, uh, and so I'm going to make every attempt to do that. But the topic before us this morning is a very, very serious, very serious topic. When God created mankind, he wove into our being some very, very powerful physical urges. God placed them within us, and when we indulge those urges within the protective confines of the word of God, then there is great joy and happiness. But when we strip them and seek to operate outside of his covenant, his protection of us, then they are a very twisted, distorting kind of activity that will... Warp our humanity and insult our Creator. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean by this. Sleep. Sleep is a great gift of God, it is the means by which we are reminded regularly that we are not God, that we are a, depend, a, a dependent creature upon our God. And this weakness should make us aware of God. And, and it is a delightful thing. And the older you get, of course, uh, the more delightful it becomes uh, to indulge in the gift of sleep. But that gift can be twisted. That gift can be distorted. And it, when it is distorted, it becomes a sin of sloth. It becomes the sin of sloth. Food. Food. And the appetite is another wonderful gift of God. What a delightful reminder, again, of our need for God, right? The fact that we must eat is that constant reminder that we are dependent upon him. And God provides for his children. And he provides with us with such, a, such, a, such an amazing um, delight of textures and tastes and aroma and, 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 um, and uh, sight and so forth. I mean, he could have given us the equivalent of dried dog food to satisfy our physical needs, but he doesn't. He just pours forth his bounty upon us in in food, and it is a wonderful and a good gift, but it too can become distorted. It can be perverted into the sin of gluttony. Into the sin of gluttony. Sex. That passionate engagement of two bodies through which we can express the deepest levels of human love can also be twisted, twisted into the soul-damning, body-ravaging, societal-ruining, depersonalizing sin of lust, of lust. The people of God have always had to face the horrific reality of sexual sin, sexual sin. The early Christians struggled to break free from the the depravity and debauchery of their pre-Christian days, their pagan roots. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 11, Paul gives a a litany there of the kinds of, of behaviors in which they were engaged. And he says in verse 11, such were some of you. Such were some of you. In other words, that's what you have come out from. That's what you've come out from. The Catholic Church in the Middle Ages took a, took a, a, a very unbiblical approach to this whole topic, but it was because they were driven by a, by a concern for the, the rampant immorality that can often overtake the people of God. And so they took the position in the Middle Ages that, quote, sexual love itself was evil, and did not cease to be so if its object were one spouse. In other words, the, the very the very sexual passions, even in the marriage, were an evil. It led, of course, to the whole. Celebracy of the priesthood and, and you know, the nuns and and all of that sort of thing, the perpetual virginity of nuns and just led the church off into into a ditch. Even the great church father of the fourth century, Augustine, he taught, quote, the sexual act was innocent in marriage, but the passion that always accompanies it was sinful. That accompanies it is always sinful. Augustine wrote. It wasn't until the Reformation, and in particular the writing of the Puritans, that, that that marriage and the act of marriage again regained its biblical footings and understandings. It's so funny because we think of the puritanical approach to sexuality and we think it's somehow inhibited, but Beloved, it was a, it was a fresh a light of, of biblical truth in a very dark and distorted understanding. In our day, we're a long way, of course, from both the Middle Ages and the Reformation in regard to our theology of sex and the sexual act. We've lost both, I think. In fact, I think many Christians today have made kind of an uneasy peace with sexual sin. They tolerate it as inevitable, unavoidable. I've seen too many good kids that have come out of good Christian homes that have been entangled in the snares of immorality. Not to recognize that this is a plague. This is a plague on the Christian church. In this text before us this morning, verses 1 through 5, a message I've entitled, Love, Lust, and Eternity. Love, Lust, and Eternity we're going to find three short statements. Three short statements that bring clarity to the topic of Christian sexuality. This is the kind of topic where you want to tread carefully. And I will seek to do so. Remaining faithful to the text. The first statement, verses 1 and 2, Love is sacrificial. Love is sacrificial. We're looking here at chapter five, having finished chapter four last week, and so we're again drawn back. and as a reminder of what Paul is doing here in these chapters four, five and the beginning part of six, is he is dealing with the practical outworkings of the incredible theological truth that chapters 1, 2, and 3 provide for us of our union with Christ and our status as adopted children of our Heavenly Father. We are new in Jesus Christ. Everything is new, and we need to live in light of that theological reality. And so Paul is applying it all over the place. And he does so through the use of this verb that's translated here as walk. You see it in verse 2 of chapter 5, where he says, walk in love. Let me just remind you of this theme that unifies this section. For example, in uh, verse 1 uh, of chapter 4, running all the way through verse 16, he's talking about walking in unity. You see it in verse 1, walk in a manner worthy, and then he talks about being diligent to preserve the unity. So it's a, it's a walk in unity. And, and the use of the verb walk, what Paul means is to live our lives, to conduct ourselves, to, to to live out our Christian life in unity. And we spent a long time talking about that. Picking it up in verse 17, he talks about walking in holiness. You see it, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. We are to walk in holiness. Here in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1 and running through to, uh, to verse 6, uh, verse five, I guess, is uh, the where to walk in love, where to walk in love, and then, and then picking it up uh, here, verse six verse seven, there 's some difference of opinion about where to, where to end it, where to start it, but, but you see it down in verse eight, where to walk in light. So to walk in love, walk in light. And then finally, picking it up here in, in uh, verse uh, fifteen and uh, following all the way to chapter six and verse nine, "We are to walk in wisdom." Careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And so this walk motif, this use of the the verb, is to speak about the Christian life. We are to conduct ourselves in unity, holiness, love, light, and wisdom. So this morning, we are here exploring what does it mean to walk in love, to walk in love. And the commandment here to walk in love is is rooted in our status as adopted sons of the living God and the need to demonstrate the the family identity, as it were, to, to imitate our father is rooted in that as well as the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who supremely demonstrated the nature of love and the fact that it is a sacrificial reality a sacrificial reality. That is true love. So you see it here in verse 1. Therefore, Paul says, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. We are a a new creation, the new self that is in the likeness of God. Look at verse 24 of chapter 4 where he says, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God. We have been recreated in the likeness of God. In other words, we we bear the family identity. And so it's only natural that Paul would call upon the Ephesians, and by extension, you and I, to, to bear out our family identity, to look like our parent, our father. We are to imitate the copy of the original. Right, Be imitators of God. And the original here is God himself. And in particular, we are called upon to imitate his love. His love. John says in 1 John 4, 8, God is love. God is love. It is his nature. It is his nature. For as the Father has eternally been in a mutually loving relationship with the Son which explains the very origin of love itself, he then sends forth that love. He is eternally loving and life-giving, and he he sends it forth into his creation and calls upon you and I, who have been changed into the image of his son, to, to demonstrate that character, to imitate that reality, to be ourselves characterized by love. Love of God, love of our fellow man. The two great commandments, right? You shall love the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. This is what it means to, to imitate God. Again, First John chapter 4, verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. Love is to be characteristic of you and I. What does it mean to love? The world is very, very confused. That word is thrown around all over the place. But what does it mean to love? Well, Paul answers the question here for us by, by reminding us of the, of the example of Christ himself, verse 2, right? Right? Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. What is love? It is the example of Christ himself who gave himself for us. That's how Jesus defines his own mission. Why did he come into this earth It was to to offer himself as a sacrifice. To give himself in behalf of his people. It was an offering that was a, a fragrant aroma to the Father. Fragrant aroma, the idea is that it was pleasing to God. It was pleasing to God. God the Father looked upon the sacrifice of the Son and he was thrilled by it. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well-pleased, well-pleased. Jesus himself, there in the, the night of his betrayal in John 17, and verse 4, he prays and he says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus understood why he came. He came to give his life as, a, as a, an offering, a, a ransom, a sacrifice, on behalf of his people. He says it explicitly in in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. For he says, for the Son of Man, not even the Son of Man, uh, came to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Beloved, this is the essence of love. This is the essence of love. It's about giving rather than getting. It's about serving rather than being served. It's about sacrifice rather than self-indulgence. Probably the most well-known verse in the entire Bible, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever shall believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. John three sixteen. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter five and verse eight. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And back to First John again, First John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love is about giving, not getting. Love is about sacrifice, not self-indulgence. It's essential that we understand this reality about love. That it is a sacrifice if we're going to make any sense of the topic of Christian sexuality. We have to have this firmly planted in our minds. Young ladies, I'm going to address you here for a moment. Typically, when a young man says to you, I love you, what they really mean is I love me and I want you. And the reason that's true is because they don't understand love. They really don't understand love. They have yet to learn the reality that love is sacrificial. Sacrificial. But daddy, he's so cute. How will I know when he has learned the reality of love. How will I know that when he says, I love you, that he is really talking about love? My suggestion to you is to observe him. To watch him in the context when nobody else is paying attention. When, there's, when, when, no, when he thinks nobody else is watching. Is his life characterized by a, a willing, sacrificial service to others? If he's doing that, if he, if he, when the spotlight's off him, is, is living for the benefit of someone else, then he has learned the fundamental lesson of love. And then when he says, I love you, you can have some confidence in it. But until he has learned that, be very, very careful. Love is sacrificial. Second, Second, lust is self-indulgent. Love is sacrificial, but lust is self-indulgent. Verse 3, but immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting. The contrast here, it's an intentional contrast between the sacrificial nature of love and the self-indulgent nature of lust so that we might not confuse the two. Christ is the supreme model of the sacrificial Nature of love. Here, Paul is prohibiting all forms of sexual lust and the dirty mind. And as a contradiction of what it means to imitate God, right? With verse 1, we're to be imitators of our Father. We cannot be a genuine imitator of our Father when our lives are characterized by that which is the absolute antithesis of our Father. We cannot be. The reason is because lust seeks what it can get. Love seeks what it can give. And it's a huge, huge difference. Paul uses a number of terms here. Verse 3, he talks about immorality. The Greek word is pornia. Pornea was a general term in reference to, to sexual intercourse outside of the, the godly confines of marriage, properly understood as a man and a woman together for life. All other sexual intercourse is pornea. It is immorality. He goes on and prohibits not only pornea, but impurity, impurity and notice he says any impurity and in, in other words any and all impurity this is literally a, a substance that is filthy or dirty the word impurity and in the context here it, it's a reference to sexually deviant behavior there's immorality which is with the pornia which is specific to sexual intercourse this is all the other related forms that are filthy dirty deviant and there's no place for them. He goes on to include greed. No immorality or any impurity or greed, he says. There's a difference of opinion here, to be sure. Some think he has moved now to beginning to talk about the desire to acquire physical possessions. But I don't think so. I think the context here is reasonably tight, and in the context here, I think he is talking about a greed in the realm of sexual immorality, of impurity. Greed is the insatiable desire to have more, never satisfied. So I think the context here is a reference to sexual greed, a a lack of satisfaction, a coveting of someone else's body for selfish gratification. That's the greed I think he's talking about. Beloved, this is one of the realities of sexual lust. It is never satisfied, never satisfied. It craves more and more and more increasingly deviant pleasures. This is where lust will take us. This is a big deal. The Tenth Commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not be greedy for your neighbor's wife. This is a big deal. A fellow by the name of Jay Wechter in a fine little work of his called Purity Workbook, he says, and I quote, lust indulged Trains the heart in greed. Lust, indulged, trains the heart in greed. I think he's right on the money. Right on the money. Notice Paul says here, verse 3, that these things must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Holy ones, literally. He's reminding them, that their status as the children of God in union with with the Son of God himself is that they are now holy ones. They are now saints, not because they are righteous in themselves, but because they bear the righteousness of Christ. And as holy as he is, they too are holy. And so as saints, as holy ones, he says, we are to abstain from sexual lusts. It is not even to be named among us. In other words, that, that those looking on and and observing the Christian should not find anything in their character that would cause them to, to name them as a person given over given over to lust. Not even to be named. It's not to be part of the lifestyle. The children of God. It is a zero tolerance. And we live in a world that is all about tolerating it, even celebrating it. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. Reflect on this reality about it not to be named among us. Where there Solomon says, do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it and pass on. But here's our problem. We indulge it. And we indulge it through our media consumption. It is a big deal. It is a big deal. Oh, I can watch this movie. I can watch that movie. It doesn't affect me. Oh, yeah. Actually, it does. It normalizes what God forbids. It lowers your standards of what is offensive to you. The fact that you're never satisfied only shows itself in the reality of the further and further you go out on the limb watching movie after movie after movie. Listen, we will watch on the silver screen what we would never go see in person. And we'll call it art. Or we'll say it doesn't bother us. But it does. But it does. Paul's not content here, verse 4, with just prohibiting the behaviors of lust. But he goes on to forbid perverse and immoral speech as well. In effect, he, it's the dirty mind that he is talking about that expresses itself in dirty conversations. There must be no, verse 4, filthiness. Silly talk, coarse jesting, filthiness, interesting word. It generally refers to ugliness as opposed to beauty. Sometimes to an ugliness that is so intense it seems to be disordered and unnatural, one author says. I think we should understand this as a reference to vulgarity and obscenities in general. We need to watch our tongues. Watch our tongues. Stuff that comes off our mouth, you know, between our lips and over our tongues should should glorify. It should be a wholesome word, Paul talks about earlier. Not the vulgarities and obscenities that characterize the, the lost and unbelieving. Beyond that, there should be no silly talk. A moronic speech kind of literally. It's the chatter. It's the talkativeness. It's the nonsensical speech. I think in this context, I I would call it potty talk. Potty talk. References to bodily functions. Things like that. There's no place for that for the believer. And there should be no coarse jesting. Again, interesting. It's a reference to a quick wit. It's the quick wit. It's the, it's the person who has always got a, you know, a, a, a reply, a joke. Says something funny, witty. Often in the ancient world, they, you know, they were the popular ones at the banquets or the drinking parties because they're funny. They just, you, know, you know people like that. They're just funny. And, and having a quick wit can be a positive thing, for sure. Paul's not prohibiting a quick wit. What he is prohibiting is the quick wit turned perverse. It's the use of the, of the sharp mind, the quick wit, the ability to make a joke and, and to turn that into the service of dirty jokes. Perverse humor. Sexual innuendos. Double entendres. There's no place for this. No place for it. At all. Paul writes over in Titus chapter 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Beloved, God has created human sexuality as a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. So to stain it through crude speech or dirty jokes, foul humor, reveals a dirty mind. A dirty mind that is desperately in need of gospel cleansing. Desperately in need. It's probably appropriate, in light of the world in which we live, to take a moment to talk, to talk about the scourge of pornography in our day. I don't think I can do this passage justice without stopping there. I am not going to recount for you pornography statistics. You can find them on your own. They are horrifying. Absolutely Horrifying. It is a multi-multi-billion-dollar business. It is primarily conducted now over the Internet, which means that it is available to everyone in their pocket through their phone. The most frequent users of pornography are young people, children, and increasingly young women. It used to be a male problem only, but it is an increasing problem among young women. Parents, do not be naive with your children. Do not be naive. By the time your child is 10 years old, it's highly likely they will have been exposed to pornography. That's the world we live in. You can pretend it's not that way, but in doing so, you will risk your child. Be alert. Be aware. Pornography is a very insidious and dangerous sin. It dissipates sexual energy, which is given by God and designed to be invested and released within a marriage. It dissipates that energy. Again, in Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 15, we see a hint of that. Where the writer Solomon, writing to his son, he says to him in Proverbs chapter five and beginning in verse 15, "Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad streams of water in the streets, do not give your energy wantingly, casting it everywhere." Let them be for yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Sexual energy is powerful stuff. And it is dissipated when it is released outside of marriage. When a young man is given over to the sin of pornography, the motivation, the sacrifice, the self-control that are, that are necessary for marriage are greatly diminished. Greatly diminished. Pornography depersonalizes another human being made in the image of God. It turns them into an object. It turns them into a means of of satisfying our own selfish sexual drives. It objectifies. It depersonalizes. Pornography is sex without self-sacrifice. Without the self-sacrifice that is necessary to produce intimacy. Pornography is sex without intimacy. Intimacy. It is, in effect, sex with yourself. And it is a profound demonstration of greed. A profound demonstration. Some of you out here are trapped right now. You are trapped. You know who you are. Lust has gotten the upper hand on you. It's driving you. It's controlling you. You'll make resolutions. I'm not going to do that again. You'll probably cry. But if you don't deal with the problem and its root, you'll be back again at the foul well. And what used to satisfy you last time won't satisfy you again. It will drag you deeper and deeper and deeper. It is a harsh taskmaster. Others of you perhaps are not trapped right now, but but the assault is coming. The assault's coming. And I don't want to leave you in a place of discouragement and, and guilt and I mean you've got the dark feelings already. I don't need to add to them. I want to offer you a way of escape. Paul says in First Corinthians chapter ten, And verse 13, that no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. There is a way out. There is a way out. What is it? What is the gospel cure for lust? Look at verse 4. Look at the last clause in verse 4, but rather giving thanks. The means to escape the dark bondage of lust is to renew our minds with the truth about sexuality. It is to be renewed about the truth with regard to the sexual intimacy between a, a husband and a wife, which is God's good gift to his children. The way out is to understand what sexuality is about and why it is God's good gift and celebrate it as such and be, and be thankful for it. To be thankful for it. Outside of marriage, our sexuality is like a wildfire. It destroys, incinerates That inside the the covenant bonds of marriage, it's like a a fireplace that that warms the home and cheers the heart. The same thing for good or evil. We need to understand it for good. Let me just outline some things for you, just some ideas. I, I, I don't have time to be comprehensive here by a long shot. Let me just outline some ideas for you. You can think on these things yourself. This is the way out. This is the renewing of the mind. You need to pursue this. But sex is God's good gift. It is God's good gift. Let's rediscover what the Puritans knew. This is God's good gift. It begins this way. Sexuality, it is a physical act which communicates a deep relational intimacy. It has been given by God as a, as a means, a physical act that communicates a deep intimacy, relational intimacy. We see that all the way back in Genesis. I'm going to take it back there. Genesis chapter 2. To that first marriage. And verse 24. This is the editorial comment on marriage. God's editorial comment. Genesis 2, verse 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. This is a a statement of the act of marriage. And the two shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. There is is this profound and deep relational intimacy. Intimacy that is wrapped up in the act of marriage. In fact, if you go over to chapter 4 and verse 1, it uses the Hebrew verb yada. It means to know. Now the man, it's been translated here in the New American Standard, had relations. I wish they'd have kept the old way. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to a son Cain. He knew her. Speaks of the intimacy Involved. It is an act of relational intimacy. And as such, it is God's good gift. It is God's good gift. Beyond that, it is a physical act with a profound spiritual implication. It has the power to make two into one flesh. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Profound spiritual implications. The act of marriage makes two into one flesh. 1 Corinthians six, fifteen and following. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. What are you crazy? That's a vernacular way to say it. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. This is a mystery. It is a mystery. But it is part of God's creation. In the sexual act of the joining of a of a man and a woman together there is a spiritual intimacy. And it is God's good gift to us, as long as it is exercised within the confines of his word. It is an experience that is designed by God to express love by giving what is most personal and sacred to another person. The giving of your body to another person is the most personal and sacred thing you have. And when you give it, you are, you are giving yourself and, and you are expressing love. Song of Solomon, chapter 6 and verse 3, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. It is the giving of yourself, the most personal and precious part of who you are. And it's to be reserved only for that one. It is a God-given obligation. It is a God-given obligation to preserve the moral purity of his people. It is the good gift of God by which his people can fight off sexual temptation. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. Now I wrote the things about which you now concerning the things about which you wrote it is good for a man not to touch a woman but because of immoralities each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband in other words get married The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It is a good gift of God in which the wife has authority over her husband's body and the husband has authority over his wife's body and is to be engaged in with regularity and and joy. You can find cases in the Puritans, by the way, where they would practice church discipline. In this case, on a husband who refused his wife she took it to the elders who took it to the church and they disciplined the guy out of the church. They took his word seriously. It is the means to bring forth children. It is the means to bring forth children in partial fulfillment of the creation mandate. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Psalm 127 talks about blessed is the man, right? Whose quiver is full of children. It has been given by God as a good gift. It fills, it fills so many voids. Divinely created voids in many cases. First uh, Corinthians 7 is, of course, a, a wall against sin. Well, I've been thinking about these things, meditating on these things, pursuing these these ideas, these realities, and and beginning to tease them out is is the means and way to begin to think rightly about our own sexuality and and marriage. And and when we do that, when we begin to think rightly God's thoughts after him, then these others that seek to constantly intrude, we, we have a defense. We have a defense. We don't just say no. We must say no. But we say no... Think differently and say yes to what God intended. This is the put off, put on. As you think upon these things, it will make you grateful. And the gratitude is your defense against the intruder. Love is sacrificial. Lust is self-indulgent. And the third The Lord is serious. The Lord is serious. Verse 5. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. God is so concerned, so concerned about sexual purity in the life of his people that failure in this area, a lifetime of failure in this area will prevent one's entrance into God's kingdom. This is a truth that is so universal. Look at the, the little way Paul says this. You know this with certainty. You have been taught this. This is not not in question. This is not in doubt. This is not just somebody's opinion. Know this, you know it, with certainty. God is very, very serious here. Very serious. To spurn God and his good gift of sexuality in favor of a gross and twisted worship of self will prevent one's entrance into Messiah's kingdom. It is the very heart of unbelief And God will severely punish a life given over to this. Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly, and unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and immoral persons, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I don't think there could be a more sober warning. A more sober warning. This reality, beloved, is why Jesus taught us that we must take violent Radical action to kill lust, or it will most assuredly be killing us. In the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, right, in dealing with this same topic, beginning in verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. And throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. That is violent language. And Jesus is saying the stakes are that high. Now he's not advocating, of course, self-mutilation. That's not the point. The point is that this is a big deal. This is a serious matter. Romans 13, verse 14, Paul says, Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. This is not the truth to shy away from. The stakes are that high. This kind of a message, by the way, is very unpopular. Very unpopular. This is the kind of message that could alienate even some of you out there right now. You might think, man, he is all over me. Get out of my life. Listen, I love you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. I tell you these things because this is the way of life. Walk in it. Let no one deceive you, Paul says in verse 6 there of chapter 5. No, let no one deceive you with empty words. Don't listen to those who tell you it's no big deal. Don't listen to your friends who tell you, yeah, I'm struggling with it too. No, that just normalizes it. Make no provision. Not a hint. The writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers God will judge. God will judge. If you have fallen... There is grace. Christ died for your sin. If you flee to the cross, there is forgiveness. If it's your past and it's just back there somewhere, don't live in guilt. There's no guilt, for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Be sobered by your past. Maybe God will even give you opportunity at some point to minister to someone else who's on the brink of making the same wicked and foolish decisions you've made. I always think about Paul's words there in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11, such were some of you. He's writing to a church. When he says such were some of you, it's got to mean that the church knew who they were. We're all about this yeah, man, I got my life together. Inside I'm dying, but I'm not going to let you know. And when we're like that, we're we're in a path of darkness. Sin loves darkness. Listen, if if you are caught in right now, you need to come to the light, which means you need to tell that person whom you are most afraid of telling. Whoever it is, whoever you are most afraid of confessing to, that's who you have to go to and confess and understand that the gospel is here it's here and the deliverance is here if we will walk in the light if we will learn to love the battle is waged in the secret places and it's a battle we have to win We have to win. May God pour out His mercy and grace on you and I that we would be ruthless in conducting this battle. Let's pray. Lord, the way out of the wilderness is to the bright light of the cross. To recognize what love really is. That Jesus came and and died in our place. That while we were yet sinners, Christ loved us and bore our sin on that cross. Our Father, we confess, all of us, that love is elusive and lust seems so natural, it sneaks up on us, catches us unawares. But Lord, we also confess sometimes we plan for it. Oh Lord, deliver us. Help us to think on those things that are true and pure, good and right. May your Holy Spirit wash our heart and mind even now in this moment. That these things would not even be named among us. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.